This is an emergency meeting. I am calling a meeting to talk to you today about feature flags. Obviously, this is the Hacker Noon Podcast, and my name is Amy Tom. What a delightful June day that we are on today. And today, I also am going to introduce you to the solutions architect for LaunchDarkly. It is Yaz Graham. your last Graham. name you didn't discuss yes. this before great that's fine that's that's great um, i'm a solutions architect there are multiple solutions we come in six packs yes so, and you have yeah. also been a dev a program manager and a field researcher so a lot of different hats that you've worn let me ask you this first to start when did you start your career in tech Oh, that would have been, my God, I think my uncle paid me to do some software for him when I was like 15. It was around, actually, it was a university time when I was like eight, 19, I think, start, and this was in 1993 or 1994, started doing phone tech support. So many of us in the industry have started in tech support, and I'm no exception. Uh, phone tech support for uh, a company that was verging into internet a dial-up bulletin board system called Delphi in the UK or Delphi in the US. People, this may ring some bells for people. Have you ever heard of Delphi? No, but I like that it's different from the UK to the US. The pronunciation, we all call it Delphi in the the UK. Uh, It goes along with CompuServe and Prodigy. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you've heard any of those names from the distant past, but it was dial-up internet or something resembling internet and forums and things. And they would occasionally let you out onto the wider web. Did you go to university for Computer science, I'm afraid. And I think this is a time to, to point out that if you are choosing well the the advice i give to people is if you want to go into tech then do something else in university not computer science it's a great way Mm. to it's a great way to get a a a leg up in certain things but what i've found is that the most interesting stuff i've discovered in tech has come from people who've come from other disciplines it's i really regret the fact that i don't have a broader education especially in things like liberal arts because writing being able to write well and communicate well is such a good long-term skill and it's the kind of thing that doesn't really age whereas computing ages while you're in the middle of learning it yeah that's really interesting i don't think i've ever heard anyone tell me that before but yeah i think you make a good point because i guess computer science is something nowadays that's easy to learn on your own like coding or whatever vertical you want to go into. And I guess writing is easy to learn on your own too. You just have to practice. It can be. I think college, there's something, I went to university in the UK. This may be obvious from my accent, but in the UK, there's much more specialization early on, right? Mm -hmm. In that when you do a degree in the UK, 90% of your courses are in your major. Whereas in the US, it's much more like 50%, it seems. Yeah. Something like that. And so I really did not get a good diverse education at all. I think in the US, it makes more sense to to focus on computer science because you're going to get an opportunity to do all these other... Yeah. And you know, people go on a lot about the importance of computer science in programming. And I'm not so much of, I think it's good to have a grounding in some of the principles, but it turns out that there's an awful lot of it that you don't really learn well, that is useful 
or a stuff, a whole load of stuff that is that you learned that isn't actually as useful as it might hmm. be. Are you pro sense. education in general, or do you think that people don't need degrees? Oh, no, I, I, mm, that's a really good question. I think there's certainly too much emphasis on degrees. Mm-hmm. I think that it's great to be able to spend time in a concentrated learning environment and to have an inv- focused on learning and to be able to get a really you, to have time to devote to learning as opposed mm-hmm. to being thrown out into the world of work but i think that the the emphasis on degrees especially places like google that that had this thing for ages I, a friend of mine i believe was the first engineer hired by them who didn't have a computer science degree or didn't have any mm-hmm. degree at all actually mm-hmm. and it certainly didn't stop him from Fortunately, didn't stop him from getting really high up in in part of the organisation. I think there's this is interesting. Having conversation with someone earlier, to, just before this, about as you become a more experienced engineer, you realise that code is less important in the greater scheme of things than communication and how you deal with people. Mm-hmm. That becomes much more important. And the way I think about it is, well documented code that doesn't work is much easier to change than undocumented code that does work and i've had to look Mm. after both Mm -hmm. right it's like the trouble is undocumented code that does work you're petrified of changing it because you've no idea why it works the way it does and code that is is well documented and has tests especially tests are brilliant but they're no replacement for documentation uh it is if it doesn't work you have a much better idea of how to fix it and it's code that is going to last much better and so I think that applies generally to communication overall. You realise as you become a more experienced engineer that it is your ability to communicate ideas to others. You can have the best ideas in the world. You can be a complete genius when it comes to code. But if you can't get the rest of your team on board, if you can't get people to work with you well on it, then there's no point. It's, yeah. and, and this is, I think, how I think of think the importance of things like codes of conduct and things like that is that we need to, it is so much more important to be able to work together well and bring in more people than it is to try and be an individual rock star Mm. who... It kind of comes to like hard skills and soft skills too. Hard Mm. skill, coding is a hard skill. Anybody can learn to code. Right. uh, And anybody can master the skill. And a a soft skill relates a little to your personality, it relates to your experiences and is harder to master because it's less tangible. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, it's certainly less tangible. It's it, there's with, with programming, you get a compiler error if you've done it wrong most of the time. If you've done it, the other kind of there's a whole load of other errors you won't get, and this gets into the world of bugs, which I think we're saving for a later later episode. But mm. it it's much harder to diagnose where you're going wrong in your socio technical skills, as people like to call them, or soft skills. And the trouble with the trouble with calling them soft skills is it, it it makes it sound like they're less important. That's Somehow true. the word I, I don't know I don't know if mm-hmm. people treat it that way, but socio-technical skills are absolutely vital. And there's actually a colleague of mine, Dawn Parzik, who is in the uh, she leads developer relations at LaunchDarkly, has a great talk about this that I, w- I recommend looking up online about developing socio-technical skills and has tips for how to do it. If you think you've got problems in how you're communicating, if you're having trouble getting people on side, or also things like empathy. Being able to empathise well with a team is so vital, and it's something that you work on all your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. I Those skills are super important. I feel almost like I have an abundance of those skills and not as much 
hard skill or technical knowledge. And, and this is because, too, maybe I went to technical school for marketing. So I came up through the other side of what you're talking about with the like more writing and creative aspects to tech. And then I went into tech afterwards. I almost feel though I wish that I had a bit of more computer science schooling knowledge because I didn't learn. I, I took one web development course or something. That's like the extent of my programming knowledge, coding mm -hmm. knowledge. And I wish that I had more of that. It, yeah. it's I, certainly I, I can definitely understand you know wanting to have more of that and I, I think it's not easy to learn I, mm. it's I think they're I think they've actually proven this to a degree there have been some really interesting yeah. studies about how there are some basic aspects of programming that certain people have real difficulty picking up or some groups of people have real difficulty picking up and uh, Honestly, I see that more as a condemnation of programming than mm. condemnation of people. Yeah. I, as I get older and I get more grumpy around everything, but especially technology, <laughs> I, it, it, I despair when I see people thinking that they are bad at technology when in fact technology is bad at them. That's how I like to think yeah. about it. Is that? Yeah, I yeah. don't think I'm bad at technology per se. I think I'm actually pretty technically savvy. I think that coding Clearly. though is like. A bit of a beast to me. <laughs> it's a little intimidating. It, it's a beast to people who are really experienced at it. It's the complexity of it mm -hmm. these days. It, unfortunately, most of our... It's a very young science still. It, there's very little advice in it that hasn't been completely upended in the past 20 years. Or there, is, there isn't still huge debate about. But the number so of how did you learn? I got very interested somehow when I was five or six. I was always interested in computers. I was always interested in playing games on them. But also my dad, I remember he, uh, my grandfather also, he bought an Apple II. And my dad bought a, a Sinclair ZX80 for the Brits in the audience, who the, this was like the original one kilobyte of memory, black and white screen, this little white and blue thing that had a a flimsy, tiny keyboard that you had to press hard on each button. And so I learned basic programming through it. And it's the kind of thing, I think there's something that's really important to learn these days I, in that I don't think coding, I think we push coding as a skill too much in that I don't think necessarily learning to code itself, learning how to write software or the ability oh, to write okay, software yes. is... I should I need to differentiate this. I don't think your ability to write, say, a Python program or whatever is necessarily that useful. What is really useful, I think it teaches you, is what I think of as automation literacy, which is the idea that certain things can be automated in certain ways. In that, I, an example I, th I think of is that my, my, my then girlfriend, this was like 20 years ago or 15 years ago, was she got a temping job at a estate real estate agent and they had brought her in because they had a spreadsheet of literally six thousand properties and the spreadsheet had each property name and a url for where on the web the information about this property and her job for the next six weeks was to go through that spreadsheet line by line go, click on each link and then copy information from the same page that were all in the same format into this spreadsheet for six weeks so she brought this home and showed this to me because she knew She's going, can you do this? 
And I said, sure. And made a Perl hacker at the time, the Perl programming language, which is great for slicing and dicing data. And so she brought in the completed spreadsheet the next day. And they're going, we wanted you to do this for six weeks and you've done it overnight. What else can you do? But the idea, what got me was that people don't realize that something that is that regimented can be automated and that you could get somebody to basically write a script in an hour that would do six weeks of work. And so learning that is possible and that mm. the different ways that you can, the things that you can do with data. I don't think you need to be able to necessarily write code, but to understand what's possible with code and what's difficult is yes. really valuable. And that, that is sense. what differentiates people who are junior versus people who are senior, because senior people have more experiences to pull on to know these kinds of things, whereas junior people only have the theory. So I think that makes sense too. Yeah. A little birdie told me that you worked on the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. That little birdie was you. <laughs> yes. We're in conversation. Things we're talking about. Oh, Hitchhiker. I did things. What else can I tell you about? I worked for, in the late 90s, I worked for a company called The Digital Village that had as its creative director, Douglas Adams, who was the author of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and various other things. And we produced a video game called Starship Titanic that he co-designed and even wrote bits of and wrote music for and starred in um, his voices in it in various places it's and it's a fun kind of click around puzzle game that has you can find it on you know that they're actually it's actually available again on steam or something for three dollars usually or gog and it's a fun game it, it's it's got good jokes in it i also worked on something called h2g2 which is still going which is the online hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy which is a website and we wanted it to be a kind of fun repository of all knowledge that we would do, that anybody could edit through a convoluted editing process. And then a couple of years later, this thing called Wikipedia came along. And it's, it, we like to think of ourselves as the, in the, the story the of, of Hitchhikers. In the story of Hitchhikers, there's the Encyclopedia Galactica, and this mm -hmm. is the, the which is the much more authoritative, serious version. Whereas Hitchhikers is much the, the Hitchhikers Guide in the story is much sillier. But I worked on that, and then I I got to help out with the movie a little bit in mm -hmm. 2005, and go on set, which was fun. Ah, oh, I like it was so small. It was I got to help out with writing bits of associated copy for some of the fun associated like websites that we did like we did a website for selling towels or universal towels and we did i actually wrote some guide entries for that were read out by stephen fry and were only available on itunes oh. uh, that i've still got somewhere they were fun but yeah i'm, I'm very distantly associated <laughs> uh, i really don't want to play it up too much apart from <laughs> Telling like everybody content here. creation, essentially. Little bits. But it was fun going on set. It was fun really seeing the amazing process of making a movie and the incredible work that people were putting in. It's a movie that people, the Hitchhikers fans have very differing opinions about, for good reason, because it tries to cram a non-movie-shaped story into a movie. And mm -hmm. it suffers somewhat because of that. But that was lots of fun to, to work yeah. on and to do. And to so work with 90s? Douglas. Yes. So most of this was in the late 90s. And it also got me somehow into working on a TV show called The IT Crowd, which I worked on the first season of. And some geeks may know it as a very geeky show. And it's fun being involved in random things here and there. Yes. Uh, I, uh, you, seem, you seem like you love random projects. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> uh, and this is, I think, a big part of my maturing as a human being and as an adult has been learning to say no. 
to things. Mm-hmm. I don't do it. I don't do it nearly enough. And so, it, yeah. it, it there's things, wonderful things. Like I've, I'm hugely privileged in a whole ton of ways. Let's face it. I, I, I need to admit this straight off. I got hugely lucky in being in the right place at the right time and for, for many of these things. I think it helps to put yourself out there a lot and do things, but obviously this is much easier for some people than others for a whole bunch of reasons. And so I have copious amounts of privilege that I have wasted on on, on things, but it's been great to, to oh. learn a bunch. Sorry. Thank yeah. you for acknowledging that. I think that's great. But I also wanted to ask because I think that the idea of switching projects constantly is a very like millennial thing to do. And millennials are often looked down upon for not being like loyal to a company in terms of working. Did you have any experiences around people who were like, oh, you've worked on too many things, like you've gone too many places? Fortunately not. Fortunately, okay. most of the places I've worked, when I say I've been hugely lucky, I really can't understate this. I think <laughs> there's been so many ways in which I've been incredibly lucky. Most of the jobs that I've got have come through knowing people or, or get, and that's to say that I got the job that I, I think, I think I met the criteria they wanted, uh, but certainly it helped to be introduced via people. And it's, Fortunately, also, the thing about being in startup world, which I have spent most of my life in, is that this kind of a year here, a year there is common to see. Fortunately, also, there's been enough periods where I've been with the same place for three, four years. So I think if I if everything had been a year or less, that might have been a problem. And I think also, I think it is hugely valuable to spend time at an organization for at least three years because Mm -hmm. there are things that you learn about how organizations change and sometimes that can be really disheartening most organizations (laughs) i'm serious no really can i'm laughing because it hurts it's there are plenty of ways in which you see an organization change as it gets older and, and some of the principles and values that you really treasure don't seem to be applied in the same way or things and being able to recognize that as a common situation, but also being able to diagnose when something is changing in understandable ways and when something is changing in a way that, no, you should get out of here. Mm. This is a bad sign. Yeah. Is and and the yes. trouble is until you get that experience of having been at a couple of organizations for a few years, it's hard to compare. Otherwise, if otherwise every kind of change feels scary. Yes. I'm scared of organizational change. But I feel like I've been burned a few times. Oh, we all, I think so many of us have. And yeah. I think especially these days, I, I think organisations, especially right now, uh, should be doing far more to earn worker loyalty than the other way around. It, it's, Shouldn't I'm it fall sorry. on the company to keep yeah. their employees rather than me feeling like I constantly need to leave? Exactly. It, it's If workers aren't feeling particularly loyal to the organisation, and that's a common thing, then you know the constant in this is the organisation itself. Mm-hmm. And maybe it should look at itself as the bad partner in the equation. But that's just to say, I would like to clarify that I love working at Hacker Noon. <laughs> of course, yes. And it's a wonderful organisation. And I re- and honestly, I really admire what I've seen. Uh, uh, it has been one of the sites that I continually come back to. And when I see the blog post comes up in my feed or whatever is a Hacker Noon post, I'm more, more likely to read it. I really yeah. appreciate the quality of what I see. 
oh that makes me so happy and i think too i'm not even joking this is actually the first job that i've ever really truly loved i think and i think it's also to has to do with a startup culture is this what your experience has been like because i have never worked at a true startup before but i feel that people the people who work at hacker noon bleed hacker noon we love right. it we're like obsessed is that something that's common in the startup world yeah I think so. Okay. I mean, and in fact, I don't even think it's necessarily just startup. I think there are, you'll find ancient organizations that the people there effectively bleed the, as you say, bleed mm. the organization, which is, which is a kind of interestingly worrying way of putting, but I completely agree. It, it literally gets into your circulatory system. It, it affects all parts of you and you've really got to temper that. You've got to, uh, I think part of the problems that happen with loyalty is that we may expect too much mm. in both directions. It is so important. And this is, it's tough because we get pushed to do things that we are passionate about for work, saying that your work should be your passion. It is also hugely valuable to be able to take a break from it. It's usually yes. so valuable to be able to, at like 5 p.m. or 6 p.m., put it down and not care mm. because the organization is not going to care about you. In, uh, in Some of them do in certain ways. Some organizations have gone above and beyond for me in ways that I'm hugely grateful. And when that has happened, I have done my best to do the same in return. So that does happen. I think it's, but part of it is not just about not giving the organization something it doesn't deserve. It's also about looking after yourself, right? Mm -hmm. Your own mental health and your ability mm -hmm. to be there for the organization is dependent Definitely. on you not tying your entire identity to it. Yes. So as someone who's switched projects multiple times, how do you decide to say yes or no? That's a really good question. Because you also mentioned because... that you need, you're getting better at saying no. So yeah. how do you decide when you're going to say yes to a project or when you're going to pass? It's, I think, firstly, this is something I'm still really bad at. I think, <laughs> okay. I, and I say okay. that because... They, I think it's very easy to be aspirational and say, oh, that's something I'd love to be involved with. Oh, that's something I'd love to be involved with as well. I and then, am such a bad, I'm so bad at that. I love to put my hands in all the pots. And then I'm right. like, I'm here Absolutely. and I'm everywhere. <laughs> yep. I, I am Mr. Pie Fingers as well. Like all the mm -hmm. pies. all mm -hmm. and, and, and unfortunately, you see what happens, which is that you can give half an hour to each one. And yeah. in the end, it happens not in the way that you wanted to, or that you're in, or it happens without you, effectively. Mm -hmm. That you look at it and go, that wasn't the level of involvement that I wanted. Yes. And so, or you, you burn have out to eventually. be. <laughs> there was a, an algorithm, effectively, or a heuristic that one of my old bosses, Robbie Stout, actually at Digital Village, the way he used to think about it was a point score, like, or someone else, I can't remember who did this, but the there's like your there's the thing you're most involved with gets 13 points something that you're half time involved in gets eight points okay something that you're you know slightly involved in gets five points and you have a total of like 21 points which means that you can't have something that you're full time and half time on 13 plus 8 is 22 mm. so you can't do that and think about also I, I think think about one of the ways that i do temper myself is What's some level of realism about what's actually going to happen? What are the failure cases here? What is likely to happen if I don't give this the attention it needs? Right? How badly will it fail? Is it, is it just that I won't be as involved as I want to? Or is it that the I will let the project down and I'll let everybody down? And it's easy, unfortunately, when you're in a depressive mode to under, undersell yourself and to think that... Every, and, and don't do that, right? But do be realistic and make sure that you... 
have all the right intentions and I'm involved in way too many things. Yes. It, Are you a side project too? Do you start your own side project? I do at work. I do. Okay, uh, yeah, in, uh-huh. in my private life, I've now, I'm sadly going through a phase which I regret, which is that I don't really have time for my own side projects. It, just because these days, being in my late 40s now, comes to the end of the day and I want to sit on the couch and mm. play video games or watch mm-hmm. TV or be with my partner and yeah. or my kids. Parenting is... Uh, the, please, if you are a parent, do not <laughs> underestimate, right, the amount of attention. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Everything that just happened in the last 10 seconds is exactly why I don't think I want to have kids. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's speaking... So many parents... I'll tell you, so many parents go, oh, kids are amazing. You've got to have them in this very kind of glazed eye, zombie kind of join us kind of way. And I will tell you, unless my feeling is, unless you really want to have kids, unless it's an imperative for you personally, don't. The yeah. planet has too many people. But if you are, if it is something that you want to do, you should absolutely have the right to have kids and Mm -hmm, be supported mm -hmm. as a parent and everything. Everybody's got their thing. I'm pretty sure that's not my thing. It's great to know that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So how long have you been working at Launch Darkly then? So this has been, I've I've been there for, in September, it'll be two years. Oh, okay. So this is one of the longer ones. (laughs) Yeah. I think, yeah. Let's see. I would say I've... It's halfway. Okay. I think on our, the longer like ones length, for me are like yeah. three or four years. Three or four years. Okay. But, you know, getting, certainly getting there. I have no intentions of leaving. I, I I have a fantastic boss. I have a fantastic team. I really like the organization. I like their values. Mm-hmm. I like the culture. Completely remote? At the moment, yes. We're starting. So one thing that happened is that we have, we were all crammed into a, into an office that we were rapidly outgrowing in Oakland. And we got this amazing new office and on two floors. It's beautiful. It's been completely designed for us. It's been painted and it's lovely. And it was due to open a week after <laughs> the pandemic started, after lockdown started. So it's been sitting there <coughs> completely, almost totally empty. The office manager has been there and a couple other people. And now we're starting to let people back in and it's a beautiful space. And, but also the company, I'm glad is being really thoughtful about it and realizing that everybody has different desires um, and needs. Uh, Do you know how many people work with you? In total? Yeah. I think I'm really bad at this, especially because it keeps changing. We're rapidly growing. So last I checked, it. it was around 300. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's and we have people. We have a lot of people in New York now. A lot in London. We have people on Australia, in Germany, I believe. I think. And yeah, we have. But London and New York are the main other places we seem to be expanding at mm-hmm. the moment. And, and you're then, from London originally. Would you ever yes. go back? Work in the London office, perhaps? Maybe. I don't know. There's aspects of London and Britain, especially right now, that I'm really <laughs> not keen to be. Uh, back with I miss it I miss certain aspects of London hugely and I love it when I do go back it's I think there's a certain British cynicism that at times is very helpful and at times really damaging Mm -hmm. and so California is in some ways the opposite of that and that's been really interesting and Mm -hmm. really aspects of it have been really positive and some of it 
I think, obviously, as now you're, you're all living in a dream world. In 2006, okay. I'd, I'd lived here, actually. I started living here on and off in 99. But the yeah. tech scene, like, in London versus LA, maybe? I have no idea. No? <laughs> I'm sorry. It, I, I just, I'm wondering, like, a while ago, yeah. we, I interviewed Charmini, and she is from Mysterium. She moved from... Oh, I think she moved from Australia to London for crypto because it was right. booming in London. And so uh, I was just thinking about what the tech scene is like in London and whether it's like a big thing that people often move there for or yeah, I don't know. I think it is. It's kind of, London unfortunately, unlike America, London has has been having this kind of black hole effect on the UK in that it's just been sucking everything out of the rest of the country. And there have been attempts to build up proper tech hubs in other parts of the country. I know friends of mine who are working in Hull. There's plenty in Brighton. Brighton is one of the few places where there's still a lot of interesting companies. And I'm probably doing a disservice to a bunch of other cities as well. Yeah. And and please forgive me, Brits, because I I, I moved away in the mid-2000s. Hmm. So I, I've been out it's the been, country. It's been a for, hot min. Yeah. A decade and a half. And yeah. so I cannot comment on... I come back... I, I was When I started in tech then, it was part of quite an insular scene that I was part of a bunch of people who were in a bunch of different country companies. And we made our own little tech mafia, as it were, and got... And, and spread out, there was a, a friend of mine who's now... he's He moved over to California around the same time I did. He is now inter, a currently international director for the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Danny O'Brien is his name. And he ran an amazing newsletter back then. He and Dave Green and Lee McGuire ran a great newsletter called NTK, stands for Need to Know. And it was an email newsletter that came out every Friday afternoon. And and it was a great digest of the tech scene at the time. And it's and there are things now I love Today in Tabs by Rusty Foster is a wonderful thing. Dave Net uh, or Dave Pell does an amazing daily newsletter. That's not Dave Net, it's something else it's called, but Dave Pell. And there there are a few of these. I really like seeing the people who have plenty of experience and do these rapid digests and are funny. And mm -hmm. have it's I, and this is one of the advantages of experience is that you get to see the patterns coming back over and over again. And it's great to be surprised when something breaks out in a way that beats your experience mm -hmm. as well. I'll also just say that you could sign up for the Hacker Noon newsletter. Oh, yes. HackerNoon.com. Yes. We have a funny newsletter. Our, we have a funny copywriting team. I like Cool. I, I'm, I confess I have not been signed up for it. I will do that. As soon as Excellent. we're done here. I don't want typing noises on the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I have to confess something to you. I'm not a developer. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't have a development background. And so as I was learning more about LaunchDarkly and feature flags, I realized this is a new concept for me. So yeah, feature flags I have only just learned about. And mm -hmm. so here's what my understanding of them is. And you can let me Go know if it. this is correct or not. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I envision it as something that you put into your code when you're wanting to release a new feature. Let's say it could be like a variable. So only a certain set of people get this feature or something like that, mm -hmm. like the professional mm -hmm. users versus the regular mm -hmm. users or something. And so you put this feature flag in that 
flags the that set of code that's the variable and that variable that or that flag lets the whole thing know that the, with this set of rules it should have this feature that's a really good explanation oh actually. yes okay that's remarkably it's it, cool. it you nailed the key thing there which is that it's something in your code that acts like a variable it's a resource that you can read and it's instant to read. It's vitally important that it impacts performance as little as possible. And it's, you use it to make any kind of decision in code. So for example, for the release version, you, the simplest form, and before we go into what we call targeting, which is you can the, how you can have multiple values for different people, depending on who it is or based on rules. Let's just say you're using it as a very simple on-off for everybody. Okay. It's still useful. It sounds like the kind of thing when I first learned about feature flags, I thought this is booleans as a service. How is this useful? And <laughs> right. <Yeah>. And <coughs> excuse me. The great thing about them is one of the great things is that you can change them without restarting your code and the code will pick mm -hmm. up the change. You don't need to change your code. You don't need to redeploy, restart anything. So it means <coughs> that you can turn things on and off without needing to change configuration, without needing to... It's a higher, it's a more rapid form of configuration, mm -hmm. effectively. It, it, and it, you can use it instead of configuration in places. It's not good for holding secrets. Like you wouldn't put your database connection string in there. Yeah, but no, it is yeah. really good for, is this feature turned on or... And so being able to have, be able to turn on a feature without deployment... Right, because we think of deployment as this big effort where you're wiping code, restarting things, things mm -hmm. may go on fire, and you'll need to roll back. And we have this very binary, very huge granularity, I think of it, in, in terms of what you want in fine-grained control. And when it comes to deployment, it's huge, it, giant gra grains, to take that analogy, is that you either get to the new code or the old code. And if the new code fails, you have to go back to the old code. And the new code yes. may have 20 new changes in it. And if yes. one of them fails, you have to roll everything uh... back. And suddenly 19 features that are working fine get completely held up because one of them has a bug, right? Ah, okay, so yeah. what you want is to be able to turn each one on and off individually, entirely separate from deployment. And yep. this is useful in a bunch of ways. Firstly, you want to, it gives you that granularity to be able to say, you know what, even though something's buggy, we can turn it off and we don't need to roll the other stuff back. It means that you can turn these features on one at a time and see how the system reacts. Mm -hmm. So that, and it means that when you roll it, roll the code out and everything is turned off, if the deployment fails, it's almost certainly not because of that new code, because mm -hmm. it's all turned off. So it must be something else. And this is hugely useful when diagnosing things, right? In When it comes to remediating failure yeah. of, of a bad deployment, every second counts. But also one of the, 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 the things where it gets really interesting to do, and this is what happens with most software engineering, is that the most interesting concepts are the things that change people process, right? It's not just code process, but which parts of the organization can do things. So when it comes to launching a new feature, normally it's in the DevOps team's hands or operations team's yeah. hands because they're the ones who control release. But if it's already, if the code is already deployed, then you can give that switch to marketing or to product and say, now it's on right. your timeline. You can turn it on yourself. You can do that it's, whenever. You can plan and, a whole marketing campaign around it. Yeah, okay. That and suddenly sense. people, if you want something to go out on 8 a.m. On, on a Sunday morning, it doesn't mean that the whole operations team needs to be ready to deploy this. You still mm. want to have, if there's a major change to code coming, you still want the developers on hand, but yeah. it's a far less of a production, if that makes sense. 
Yeah. So I'm just thinking like wrapping my mind around production and launching new features. I think that yeah. in the past for companies that I've worked with when I used to work for like a software company and the mm -hmm. software company would roll out the new code quarterly and mm -hmm. they essentially is what they were doing, taking the base um, from the previous quarter, creating a new variable, coding yeah. in all of the features into that variable and then trying to launch. But then there's multiple features yeah. within the same variable. So yeah. something like a feature flag would be able to tell me uh, to single out each individual feature yes. so that I can I'm, I know what happens if there's bugs or if, if something goes wrong. OK. Got it. Exactly. And then you get into things like, firstly, that flags don't have to be Booleans. They can be any kind of value. You can have multivariate flags. Right. So you could have text message in there. If there's like the hello greeting, right, mm -hmm. then you can say, OK, we want to change the greeting. It's going to read it from this feature flag. Yeah. And the good thing is that anybody can update that feature flag without needing to redeploy or restart code. Mm -hmm. So it can be marketing or, or copy or content team or whoever that changes that. But then you get into things, as you, as you said, you can have different values for different people based on rules. Mm -hmm. And the power there is amazing because those rules do not need to be in your code. And when you realize that you can completely change how something works for different kinds of people or different kinds of users or different contexts without needing to change the code or to put that logic in the code, then it right. becomes amazing. So there's one example that I love, which is what's called testing in production. And this gets hugely misunderstood by developers. The idea that you do testing in production, some people think we're not doing any testing in staging, we're just throwing code out there untested and testing it. It doesn't mean that. It, what, what it means, firstly, as, to, as we like to say, you're always testing in production, whether you admit it or not. You're always putting code in production that may have bugs and you have to roll it back because there are bugs. But what you can do, in, normally the, the way you do testing, and you may have seen this, is that you have a staging environment, right? So you put the code in the staging environment and the QA team or whoever it is that's testing, include the developers themselves, mm -hmm. does the tests in the staging environment. And then yep. once you're happy, you roll it out to production. Yep. Now, the trouble is that staging is never the same as production. You put a huge <laughs> amount of effort into making staging the same as, as close as it can be to production, but it is never production. And that is yeah. why plenty of code fails as soon as it's deployed to production, because yeah. there's some core difference. And so what you can do is you can deploy code to production that is turned off. And then you turn it on, but only for the people in the QA team or the people internal staff. Mm -hmm. So you can say, we just, so this is only available for use by our team who is testing it. And they're literally testing it in the production environment, but it's not released. So the difference is there's, it's deployed, but the, the, so we tend to think of deploy and release as the same thing. Deploy is when you put the code out there on the server. Yep. Release is when it's available for everybody to use. And okay. usually those are the same things. But mm -hmm. if you separate deploy from release, you say we put the code out there, uh, but uh -huh. release is a much more release gradual thing. You can so, say- So yeah. with this, you put the code in already in deployment and then it remains dormant. And then exactly. you can- flip the features on one at a time mm -hmm. and thus also making sure that it works in production and works all together. Yeah. And, and so you can then why yeah. do people not do this? Is there a, a situation where this doesn't make sense? 
It's, there are some situations where it doesn't work very well, I think, but not many. We yeah. keep finding, I think that there are cases where you can't really use it because the systems won't allow it. You can't feature flag certain kinds of systems because you can't put custom code in them. So when you're building out certain kinds of infrastructure or like the configuration for that infrastructure needs to be controlled in a different way. And there are things you can do to attach events to feature flags. So you can say, when I flip this feature flag, also trigger this script that goes and does this thing to the infrastructure or mm -hmm. something like that. And you can even have things the other way around. There's a wonderful trick you can do. This is something we call flag triggers or circuit breakers, which is that you can... So you have a monitoring system or something that is watching, making sure your code is well behaved. And what you will do is you'll set normal... Your normal MO is to put thresholds on it so if if something starts going really bad like if page load starts taking longer than a second or if your cpu your cpu percentage goes above 95 something like that then it should start triggering alerts and and wake yep. people up what you can do is have these alerts flip feature flags as well and this is really useful in situations like black friday right or unexpected uh -huh. flat traffic floods so uh -huh. sometimes so let's say you've got an e-commerce site and you've got product pages and the products also have comments and reviews on them. Mm -hmm. And that's something that might be, may take a lot of database work in the creation of the page, but it, it's extra database work to put those reviews there. But the reviews are not the most valuable thing. The most valuable thing is that you can see the product and buy the product. That's your priority. Yep. So if your site goes under intense load and suddenly all these reviews and comments are generating a whole load of extra database load, you can load, you can shed that load by, mm. you know, saying we have a permanent feature flag that turns off reviews and comments. It won't show them in the page anymore. And it's something to reach for when you need to keep the site stable. So it gives mm. you a easy set of things that you can do in times of heavy load to very rapidly change running code without having to restart it, without having to redeploy. Okay, um, but I wanna go back to yeah. a question that yeah. is, why do people not use this? Is Why is this not so widely adopted that everybody has feature flags of some sort? It's, I think in many ways it's a it's quite a new idea and which is interesting because it's a really simple one but often it's the simple ideas uh, especially in software engineering that there are certain things certain kinds of I think like like dogma certain taboos that we have and and things keep changing about about what's okay and what isn't and one of them, for example, is the tension between test everything as thoroughly as possible before release or just continually release, continually deploy and then make fixes. And there's and it depends entirely on the kind of business you're in. And I think feature flags help you move more towards the continuous deployment, which most people actually want to do. So by giving you that extra control, it, but it, it's still it, it's a kind of thinking I think honestly, one of the reasons why it hasn't been picked up as much is because the idea is so weirdly simple, it's almost insulting. That was <laughs> like certainly part of what, what hit me uh, yeah. when I first saw it. As I said, Booleans as a service, really? Because you don't see the benefits until you look at the mm. process improvements, until you look at how it changes how the organization works together. Mm -hmm. um, That's interesting you mentioned yeah. that because I'm going to be honest with you. I was chatting with my developer before this and I call him my dev mind. 
his name right. is Richard. He's been on the podcast. Hi, Richard. And he helps me to understand some of these things and pick apart the IT speak. And one of the things he was saying was, I don't really understand why I would use this as opposed to using a branch and just using different URLs when they release new right. features. Because he was he didn't immediately see the value as well. Mm -hmm. So that's why I'm thinking, like, just wondering about why people don't adopt this massively. It's And the thing is that we still use branching occasionally in LaunchDart. We do the pull request model in internal development still. We do branching. We do set up separate URLs for checking things. The feature flags is a good thing to have on top of that. It's a... I think it's the kind of thing that becomes more important the more change you have, the more development you have, the more people you have working together. And that, and that with a lot of software engineering practices, right? There's a lot of them that don't seem to make don't seem to be that valuable until the scale of things that you're doing and especially the number of engineers you have, the amount of work that's happening every day, the number of changes that are going to the code base, until those start scaling up, suddenly these things become a lot more important and the mm -hmm. value becomes a lot more apparent. So, but even so, as a developer, even if you're a single developer, one, something I love for mobile development is being able to use feature flags in mobile apps. And the trouble with mobile apps is that you can't just deploy a new version that instantly updates everything. Thing. You've got to wait for people out there to update their apps. And sometimes some users stay on an old version of an app for years. Mm -hmm. And you need the ability to say, I want to turn this off for this versions of the app on this platform or on this hardware profile is incredibly useful without needing to change, push new code because you can't. But it's, I think, sorry, to come back to the, the key question, I think part of it is that it is a, a relatively in the history of things, it's a relatively new technique. Launch Darkly is the first company, I believe, to actually do feature flags as a service. And it yep. was founded in 2014. Yeah, so pretty new. That's only that yeah. seven years ago now. Yeah. And and so loads of companies, I think that also that loads of companies have built their own internal feature flagging systems. And oh, yeah, okay. a lot of them, unfortunately, they then realize why this is something that is better handled in a dedicated system that you may want to pay somebody else for and there's good open source i actually did a big blog post on launch darkly about build versus buy in terms of do you want to build your own do you want to use an open source one do you want to buy one and personally i would say never build your own there's plenty yeah. of good open Ways source of ones if you want to mm -hmm. start there are great open source ones out there and it's a much better idea than building your own I think mm -hmm. that obviously I think that Launch Darkly is better than the open source versions. Yeah. Uh -huh. But if you if I was saying if you were saying, look, I'm not gonna pay for it yet, I would say yeah. use there are good open source ones, use one of those, start with that. Because I think it's because people underestimate how difficult it is to do well. It just seems like much. such a powerful tool yeah. to help your productivity. Mm. Yeah. It, it's something that many everybody underestimates how it works and what it needs to be able to do. And so I think mm -hmm. I can just add a database table and put some booleans in there and I'm done. And it's like, no, you're not. For you, as someone yeah. who has been on so many projects, why do you, why are you staying at Launch Darkly? What makes it special to you? It's, I think, ultimately the people is, mm -hmm. but also I think, so that that's my own personal reason is that yeah. I, having, you know, been through a whole bunch of different things and different companies, it's, I love the people who I work with, I think. They are fantastic. It, it, it makes all the difference. The, tr the worst thing, I've been working on 
systems that I passionately believed in, but I could not get along with the people. And ultimately, mm. it was really mm. a, a bad thing overall. And it's bad for your mental health. It's yes. bad for stress. I think that Launch Darkly is, it's cl- to me, it's clear that it's the market leader in this particular space. I work there, obviously, I would say that. But I think also it's a really interesting area. If you're interested in software engineering and the future of software engineering, finding these it's interesting. It's an analogy. Feature flag has an analogy for itself. It's a small switch that makes a big difference. And it, it's the literal meaning of the word leverage. You want us, who the philosopher who said, with a sturdy enough space and a long enough lever, I could lift the world. And yeah. I think Launch Darkly is in a place to make a big change to software engineering with some relatively s- s- simple starts that mm. end up affecting things in a big way. I think that for me, the philosophy of it. We talked about this a little earlier, but as an engineer, as you get a more experienced engineer, you go from being frustrated that something doesn't work to being amazed that anything works at all. Because (laughs) software is so horrifically complicated. And it worries me. It worries me that we have this overcomplicated pack of house of cards that we are building everything on and continually adding new flaws Mm. to that is more complex than we can comprehend. And so it becomes more important to have an off switch. Have off switches for very simple controls over things so that you can get your hugely complicated system back under control again. And to me, that I think is an increasingly important thing to have in the world. Yeah. All right, Yas, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much, Amy. This has been brilliant. I learned a lot about feature flags that I didn't know before. So I thank you for that. And where can we find you and your work online? On Twitter, I am at yours, Y-O-Z, or Y-O-Z if you're a Brit, because I, I got it's terrible. I still, <laughs> yep. half and half, when talking to Americans, or always Canadian. go with Z. Canadian or, or American. Canadians, thank you, mm-hmm. or Australians, or etc. But yes, Y-O-Z on Twitter. Launchdarkly.com, one word. I have also a few videos that explain simple aspects or or, or multiple aspects of uh, feature flagging. You can go to Launchdarkly's YouTube channel to see those, or you can go to launchdarkly.com slash onboarding is a place where we keep a bunch of videos to explain aspects of feature flagging. Okay, perfect. Thank you, Yaz. Thank you, Amy. If you like this episode of the Hacker New Podcast, subscribe, like it, share it, do all the things. And this episode was edited by audio wizard Alex and hosted by me, Amy Tom, and produced by Hacker Noon. Stay weird and I'll see you on the internet.